0: Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale June 2nd, 2021. And I'm one of your co-hosts, Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M.
1: And I'm the other co-host, Tucker Marcus.
0: The uh, newly mustached, once again, <laughs> Tucker Marcus. It's looking good. Um, this is a great episode for a number of reasons. One, because our guest is Joanna Robinson, writer for Vanity Fair, and we're talking about Hawkeye with her. And it's a terrific conversation. I can't wait to get into that later. But two, this week is the start of the X Men Hellfire Gala.
1: Oh. I have been so pumped for this. I hope, listener, you have been tuning into our previews and predictions, articles that we've been doing on marvel.com, give some insight into maybe what to expect, some teasers, maybe some things that you might have missed in the buildup, as well as early looks inside the books themselves, the preview pages. So we've been doing those in the buildup. They're continuing to come out. You can continue to follow along and read them as we go, even now, including with looks at Planet Size X-Men, which... Woo, boy. Yeah. Uh, You know
0: what? We'll give our picks for this week. We'll talk about uh, our new books. We'll tell you about what is available in Collected Editions this week and on Marvel Unlimited. Then we'll get into our chat with Joanna Robinson. And as we start to get into our picks, we're all hellfire all the time this week. Yeah. Yeah. Very exciting. There's a couple things I think we should let everybody know about the X-Men Hellfire Gala. One, if you have not been reading the X-Men comics, this is a great jumping on point. This whole month of June is a great time to just check out any of the X-Books. Two, you can read any of them or all of them, and each one gives a different perspective because they all take place during the Hellfire Gala concurrently in some way, shape, or form, Right.
1: Right. It's like a Rashomon kind of different angles on similar events. Sometimes, you know, your perspective will be from one character, another time, another character. And sometimes, you know, the gray area of what you really saw, what really happened, there's big things on the way in the Gala. I'm so pumped.
0: Yeah. The other important thing to let everybody know is while you can read all of these and in any kind of order, there is a, a sort of like suggested reading order, if you are going to read them all, they flow into each other without being direct continuations of each other. So we'll start with Marauders, and then go to X-Force, and then go to Hellions. So usually we do things alphabetically, but if you look at the back of any of the issues, that's how they're listed. And so we're going to try to keep with that in, in our discussion. I also want to give a shout out to our intrepid producer, Jorge, who has actually gone above and beyond in getting us the covers, which is so good. You know, Marauders, I can see all the different covers here. If anybody hasn't seen David Nakayama's fashion magazine inspired covers, unbelievable. Yeah. I think David's doing some, but there are some other artists doing other fashion magazine covers. There's also the design variants, which are incredible. Those have been heavily promoted. Each of the books that are coming out have like Russell Dodderman's design variant, which is incredible. But then there's also like dedicated design variants for other folks who are attending the Hellfire Gala. So like Marauders has Pyro and Sebastian Shaw, Banshee Bishop and Iceman on the cover. And Man, there's so many amazing covers. It's kind of wild. Um, yeah, I believe the design variant for this one is by Matteo Lowly, who is uh, also the artist on this issue. It is written by Jerry Duggan. Colors by Edgar Delgado. Letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Designed by Tom Muller. Um, this is Marauders number 21. Jerry Duggan is one of the most versatile writers in comics, I think. He can go from writing a Deadpool story that is tons of characters just vomiting all over each other to a story about redemption or a story about revenge in the pages of Marauders or goes over and you get to see him do just mad stuff in Savage Avengers he's funny he's weird and you get all of that in this issue and I think Matteo lowly has really come into his own on this book there's a lot of really wonderful acting going on I'm looking at a a page where Dr. Doom and Captain America, you first see them, the two of them just staring at each other. (laughs) And it's, it's a simple thing, but the way that Captain America is slight, like his posture is like slightly to one side and Doom is sort of slightly to the other. It's a simple little, little thing, but it really like you sense the tension immediately by looking at what's going on there. There's a thing to also keep in mind as you're going through all the the Hellfire Gala, there's a ton of cameos in here. There are a ton of people who have been invited to the gala. There's a wonderful spread single page where you can see Conan O'Brien in a really smart <laughs> white tuxedo. There's yeah. comic book creators, there's, you know, the people who are making the books are all across here. It's one of the most fun, but also very intense books that we have right now.
1: Yeah. Because this is like a packed party, because there's so much background detail, because there are so many characters involved here, there's an equal number of micro interactions, micro acting, facial expressions, little tiny stories in the background of each of these pages. That's what's so much of the fun of this is just kind of, we're encouraged to lean into the fancy gala of it all, to lean into this X-Men story, but also this party.
0: Yeah. There's a moment in here with something that is delivered to the gala where it's handled a little bit, but then when you read, I think it's in X-Force, you actually see how that is actually handled in the next sequence. So if you only read Marauders, you would know that there is something going on. But then if you read X-Force, you would see how that was handled. You don't Mm -hmm. need to read both. But when you do, when you start to see the whole picture, it opens up so much more. Oh, yeah. One last thing, kudos to the team for also including an old Hellfire Gala story from X-Men Classic uh, number seven, I think. It's an old uh, story. So if anybody doesn't know, X-Men Classic was a sort of dual purpose book. It reprinted older X-Men stories because back in the 80s, maybe even into the 90s, I think it was harder to get old Copies of books, especially X-Men, and they were, you know, either expensive, we didn't collect them like we do now. We didn't have a digital system. So they would reprint the older X-Men stories, you know, from the beginning of the Claremont sort of era. And then Chris would write a new backup story with another artist. And a lot of the art was done by John Bolton, who's this incredible, realistic looking artist. It, beautiful, beautiful stuff. We've collected a lot of those stories in a couple of different volumes, and they are on Marvel Unlimited, I think. If you've never read X-Men Classic and you love the Claremont run, holy moly, you're going to be in for a ton of great stories, including this one.
1: More Hellfire Gala action on the way. As we mentioned, the recommended reading order, we have X-Force number 20 written by Ben Percy with art by Josh Kassara, colors by Guru EFX, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. So we know that X-Force has been tasked with security. They're the security of the event. We are really seeing all angles of this event. That means we've been in the kitchen. That means we're like on the coast of the island, keeping an eye out alongside Wolverine. We're doing security checks with Kid Omega. It just pulls you in. It pulls you in. As we go deeper into the story, the drama is ramped up in this issue. We're there. We're in it. If you've taken a peek at the cover of X-Force number 20, you know that there's one party crasher in particular Mm -hmm. who has certainly a lot of past experience with X-Force. I'm talking about Deadpool. How that happens, what goes down with him in here, I will not say, but... The other story that's being told, it's just wild and it is so much fun. There are like five different really big plot lines advancing in here, and you're just sort of sprinting to keep up with all of them at the same time. I gotta say, Josh Kassar's Beast is maybe one of my favorite Hank McCoys ever. I'll also say, if you're big into Bolo ties, this is the issue for you, (laughs) because that's what the X-Force team has gone with. Anyway, there is just so much in here. There's so much packed in here. There's so much to enjoy. Huge shout out to this entire team for what is going to be just an incredible month. I'm so excited.
0: Yeah. I'm also so excited because I make my cameo at the Hellfire Gala in two panels uh, in X-Force. Looking great. You know what? Josh Kassara, man, knows how to dress me and James Monroe Iglehart and Lorraine Sink for the gala. It's the the This Week in Marvel team got special invites. So we showed up and we came to party. So it's a lot of fun in that issue. And then so we have one more Hellfire Gala issue this week. It is Hellions number 12. Hellions is one just such a great book, but it's so weird in that like the whole idea of the Hellions group is that these are the vicious, sort of unstable members of Krakoa that need a little guidance, but they end up always getting into really dangerous situations. And they are led by both Quanon, aka Psylocke, and Sinister. The team is, is so good. It's like Havoc and Nanny and Orphan Maker and Wildchild and Gray Crow and friggin' the worst of the worst, Empath. He's just diabolical. But when you get into this book, you realize that most of them haven't been invited to the biggest event that their nation has ever held and where a lot of their peers will be except for Havoc and Psylocke and Sinister. I think that's such an amazing angle to take because, of course, it all goes terribly wrong as the rest of the members are like, screw it, let's crash this party. This issue written by Zeb Wells, art by Steven Segovia, colors by David Curiel, letters by AVC's Ariana Mar. It is everything you could have hoped for with this team of messed up people who always make the wrong decisions. They make so many great wrong decisions in this issue. It is hilarious. This is one of the funniest issues. Zeb, we know, is a hoot and a holler, but also handles the drama really well. But it also does have really sweet moments as these characters go through the gala, sort of Inadvertently, and come out the other side and see, like, hey, the future of Mutant Kind is pretty special. And then the last panel, of course, is just this, like, da da da, we're going to hurt everybody next issue.
1: <laughs> oh, man. I want to do an entire episode just talking about the Hellfire stuff, but we must move on now to all the new comics that are hitting shelves this week. And Ryan, I've decided in honor of one of those books that we will be utilizing the power of the iron list this week. And so I am... Pumping my iron list fist into the air, first and foremost, with Amazing Spider-Man number 67, which begins a a new story arc called Chameleon Conspiracy. And yeah, that's what it sounds like. The chameleon is here. The chameleon is involved. Obviously, a storied history with regard to Peter Parker. But... It's a very interesting angle on what that means. It's it's not quite the supervillain going head-to-head with superhero story that you might automatically think it is. It's really, really cool. It's so much fun. Writing Amazing Spider-Man has to be one of the biggest challenges in all of comics, not just because of the mantle and because of expectations, but because of the number of issues you have to churn out every single month. It's just a huge, huge challenge. And and to be leaping into a new story arc like this is so much fun. It's done with a plum, as we would expect. And there's more excitement to come with ASM.
0: Yeah. Let's jump over to Black Cat number seven. Black Hat is so incredible. Jed McKay, I think, is um, sort of slowly under the radar to some, I think, carving his name as one of the the lead writers that we have right now. He's just doing some really great character work and, and action work and emotional stuff. This issue is gonna tear your heart out. Black Hat has to reconcile some really bad things her mentor has done and stuff that she just can't stand for. It's a, a heartbreaker of an issue. It is gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. I think I will give my Iron List award of the week to the final kiss at the end of this book, which was not what I expected, but I am here for
1: it. Yeah, totally. Now we have next up our Heroes Reborn section. We're kicking it off with the flagship book. This is Heroes Reborn number five. This issue contains two stories. The first one is called The Pageant of the Masters of Nocturnal Artistry. I mean, how much fun is that? The second one is called The Quest of the Ronin. This first story. Good God. I mean, the art is by R.M. Guerra, and that is my iron list champion of this issue. Absolutely gorgeous. And I got to say, right alongside that, Julia Brusco, who provides art. It is beautiful. It's got a slightly indie vibe, these kind of slightly thicker lines. I think it's just carried off absolutely beautifully. And I really, really love the story that we have in here. I think the Nighthawk stuff that we've been getting across Heroes of Born has just been so much fun. I mean, this is even looking ahead to After Heroes Are Born. I hope that there's a resurgence of Nighthawk stories and, and storytelling because I'm just a really big fan of that character. And then in the second story here, The Quest of the and that has uh, pencils by, of course, Avengers artist, the great Ed McGuinness. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. I really just love the sort of getting the band back together vibe of some of these Heroes Are Born stories as Blade sort of has been unraveling this story remembering the world as it once was, remembering the Avengers, slowly pulling the likes of Captain America and others back into the fold. We're following this mystery alongside them. It's really, really fun. And, you know, this is storytelling at its finest from some of the best out there. So this is a a must read.
0: Yeah, we've got Heroes Are Born American Knights number one, out this week in... Look, it's not one of our books, but if you are a fan of the old Gotham Central series by Greg Rucka and Michael Lark and and a whole bunch of other amazing creators, this is the vibe of this book. It follows Commissioner Luke Cage, who is the police commissioner, and getting into some nasty stuff and and dealing with superpowered criminals or or just no good nicks and some other stuff. I will give my Iron List Award to Commissioner Cage for... uh, throwing a great punch and telling someone they're fired at the same time. I love that moment.
1: Uh, next up with our Last Year as a Born issue this week, we have Marvel Double Action, number one. And my Iron List award goes to Dan Jurgens, who brings us some incredible 1960s action. The art in here just fully commits to what looks like sort of 1968 inside this story. And what's happening here is sort of you know a retelling of the Marvel Universe an exploration of the Marvel Universe as it is in the Heroes Reborn Universe instead of what it is in the 616. And in this story, we have a kind of riff on the death of Gwen Stacy. It's really great. I think it hits some of these moments beautifully. And seeing it realized in that old style art, is really cool. It's a really fun exploration of these things. And and again, this is just something that we can only do with a really fun, big swing, big story like Heroes Are Born. The idea of it, I'm a huge fan of, and then the execution. Seeing it as good as it is, I just love.
0: Hell yeah. All right, we've got Immortal Hulk number 47 out this week. And if, if you hadn't heard the news, We know that we're coming to the end of the series by uh, Al Ewing and Joe Bennett and crew. 49 comes out in August. That's the penultimate issue. So then 50 will be the big finale. But we still got a lot of stuff to get through. And this issue is wild. This is a great introduction. And I'm going to give it my Iron List Award for Gamma Flight. Gamma Flight in here is a crew that is trying to both help stop and help save the Hulk. Hulk is just on a rampage. The part of the issue is Hulk versus the Avengers. Then Gamma Flight shows up, and it's Gamma Flight versus the Avengers, and kind of with Hulk around it. So it's this wild melee of an issue, but with deep emotional moments. It's big action. There's a moment in here where Hulk's arm regrows around Thor's face, and it's gnarly (laughs) as hell. But this is a great introduction to the Gamma Flight team as we're getting a new Gamma Flight book coming very soon.
1: Yes. Uh, And now time for me to hand out my iron list award to iron fist heart of the dragon. Number six, this closes out what has been an absolutely excellent. Every single issue has been so good limited series here. The storytelling here, the writing, the character work in particular, it's held in this writer's hands so delicately, so gently, so expertly. It's Larry Hammett. It's like watching a surgeon. Every decision is so precise. Every choice is so delicately made. It's so wonderful. And that's just thinking about it on the broader level. When we get into the action here, boy, is there a ton of action done beautifully here by Dave Wachter. My Iron List Award goes to Iron Fist in this issue for fighting in the rain. Just <laughs> one of my favorite things, period. Any medium, any time, any place. I love it. It just adds that drama. Pick it up. Read it. It's incredible. What a ride it's been.
0: Yeah, Um. and- it's a big change for the Marvel Universe in this issue. So I'm excited to see what that means. Um, All right, we've got Iron Man annual number one. This is the first of eight summer annuals that are coming out. They're all under the Infinite Destinies book, sort of like header. This one is by Jed McKay. Again, Jed doing some incredible work. His Iron Man, I'm like, oh, I I want to see Jed do more work around Iron Man. It also ties into the Miles Morales book. And you get an incredibly emotional Miles Morales scene in here, which I was like, oh, man. And it's that moment where Iron Man's like, somebody hurt my friend. I'm going to go hurt that person that hurt my friend. And it was it's rad. It's a great, cool issue. I will give my Iron List award. I'm going to give it to Jed here just for, for surprising me with more characters I haven't seen him write a ton of that I absolutely incredibly adore his work on.
1: Mm-hmm. What can he do? All right. Next up, we have Non-Stop Spider-Man number three. With a title like Non-Stop Spider-Man, you know that this book is going to be packed with action, brought to you by some incredible, chaotic, wonderful, inimitable Chris Pachalo art Obviously, the storytelling is masterfully done. It's expertly done because we're talking about some of the best around right here. But my Iron List Award goes to that feeling, goes to that 100-mile-an-hour feeling that we're getting from this book. It's so specific, and it's a really big testament to the creative team and to editors, Lindsay Kohik and Nick Lowe, the entire team who take a character and, and find a million different angles on him. And in this one, it's it's a really, really idiosyncratic specific book that I'm really enjoying. So great. Um, all right, we've got
0: Savage Avengers number 21 out this week, written by uh, Jerry Duggan again. And this book is absolutely bananas. It is Conan the Barbarian versus Ghost Rider. Conan is not having any of Ghost Rider stuff. And I will give my Iron List award for this book to maybe my favorite and most metal line in comics this year. It is Conan digging his fingers into Ghost Rider's eye sockets and screaming, I will do no penance for false gods. <laughs> Good Lord. If I don't hear like some some hardcore metal singer, go,
1: I will yeah. do no penance
0: for false gods before it just goes into this <laughs> sick riff and just like everybody starts moshing and destroying each other. Then I don't know. Music oh, is dead to me. Yeah,
1: yeah. I so just good. love imagining like thoughtful, pensive Jerry Duggan in his office, just like writing that, typing that out, going, "Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that feels right." <laughs> oh man, so good. All right, our last book of the week is Star Wars: War of the Bounty Hunters, number one. We've been exploring these great prelude stories uh, so far, but. This is the issue where it really all kicks off. And I got to say, it's absolutely one of those where there are huge, huge spoilers, stuff that like as soon as I saw it, I immediately was like, wow, I did not anticipate that sort of thing coming into play here, Uh, but it does. And it is so exciting. I really love it a ton. It's really just Boba Fett at his finest, just the gravitas and how cool this character is really comes through. I also want to shout out Luke Ross, who I've been a longtime fan of. I think he's an incredible artist on this. And Niraj Manon, who brings the colors beautifully. There's something, there's like a pastel to look to a lot of this issue that is just gorgeous. We'll dig into what actually happens in here more in the future. I'll say that because a lot goes down and none of it is stuff we can talk about. And that's, we're finishing this week's fresh new issues. Now moving over to collections, a bunch on the way, looking straight towards Spider-Woman volume two, which is the King in Black entry of Carla Pacheco and Perry Perez's ongoing epic. We have Death, of both of the Stacy's. That's not the name of the collection, but those are two collections Death of Captain Stacy and Death of Gwen Stacy. And then we also have Spider Man's Son of the Goblin.
0: Yeah. Over in Marvel Unlimited, we've got Black Hat number three. So you can read those first three issues of the run and start to jump on board for the rest. We've got a lot of King and Black stuff coming out. Captain Marvel number 26. New Mutants number 16, which is great. Wolverine number 10. Tons of great books for you to check out. Ooh, oh yeah. Uh, Captain Marvel, Marvel Snapshots and Marvel's Voices Legacy number one. So some really good stuff over in Marvel Unlimited. You can get the full list of all the comics that we were talking about on marvel.com. But it is time for our guest. Tucker, remind us, who are we talking
1: to? This week, we're talking with Joanna Robinson, who's a senior writer at Vanity Fair and host of the podcast, still watching, and a big Marvel fan. We're talking about a book that I actually cannot believe we haven't spoken about on a reading club yet. It's Hawkeye, of course. Hawkeye the Fraction AHA run from 2012. We're taking into issues number one through five, but really talking about the entire run. It's a really great conversation. So let's go have that chat with Joanna Robinson right now. Joanna Robinson, thank you so much for talking to us today. I actually can't believe that it's taken this long for someone to request that we read what is now, without a doubt, a modern classic. So, first of all, welcome to the show. And second of all, could you talk about your past and your experience with Hawkeye?
2: Yeah, Hawkeye was my introduction to Marvel Comics. Growing up, I was not a comics reader. I was, you know, what you might call a geek or a nerd in all other spheres, but I just couldn't get into comics and I didn't know what it was. And it frustrated me. Because all of my friends were into comics, and I wanted to be in on that conversation. Every time I tried to sit down and read a comic, there's something about the format that just like I couldn't lock into the story. And then when I was in my early 20s, I think mid-20s, something like that, my best friend handed me a couple comics. And then this is going to sound so typical, but a guy I was dating (laughs) made it his mission. (laughs) But he was so smart and great about it because I think there are ways in which you can – Push comics on people that will just send them running in the other direction, right? But he was like precise, like precision. First thing he did was send me a podcast that Kelly Sue DeConnick was on, and I just got obsessed with Kelly Sue, and listening to her talk about her Captain Marvel run was incredible. And then he sent me this great article interview that that Mo Ryan did. And I was a huge Mo Ryan fan. Uh, And he sent me an article that she did on this Hawkeye run. And that is what compelled me to pick it up. And then I was just hooked all the way into this run of comics. I just reread the article. I was like, what did Mo do to ensorcel me? But like the thing that I've since discovered is you can have comics that feel like comics – and comics that feel like films. And this is a rare comic that feels like a TV show. And since I write about television and film for a living and mostly about television at that time, this just really hooked me in as something that felt like a great like FX series. I was a huge Justified fan. It just like felt like that. So that's what got me into Hawkeye. Here I am.
1: That is such a good explanation of this. And I feel like... <laughs> That truly, I've never heard anyone describe this series that way. But That is so concisely put, like someone who writes about this kind of stuff for a living. <laughs> so I guess one of the big takeaways here is, folks, if you're going to try and get your significant other into comics, pick a good comic. <laughs> one that's really good.
2: It helps. It helps. Yeah,
0: have good, strong taste in comics, please.
2: Yeah. I will say another thing that really convinced me that comics were for me was the Ryan North Squirrel Girl Mm -hmm. run. Huge hook for me. And then just goes from there. And as you know, you know, once you're into the Marvel world, there's so many little hooks that'll pull you off into another direction and you want to follow a character. Or for me, most often, I want to follow a creator, an artist that I love or a writer that I love. And what are they doing next? And what are they interested in? And then I'm going to be interested in that character.
0: In that vein, where did you go from here? Were you like, oh, I want to read more of what Matt's writing, or I want to see what David has done? Did you go and like find Immortal Iron Fist after this to see where they were beforehand? You know, what was that path?
2: Yeah, I, I read the Iron Fist run, and then I was I was interested in the Kate Bishop origins, so I followed Kate Bishop over and some other stuff. And basically, Matt Fraction is the kind of creator, and, and the combination with David's art is... I think him at his best. But Matt Fraction is the kind of creator and and Kelly Sue also that I will follow anywhere. Like whatever they're doing, I want to read it.
1: Could we go back a little bit? This is something that I often ask writers and artists that we have on the show, but I am super curious to hear about your background as someone who came up in the world of magazines and print. Your work is something that is deeply interesting to me and I'm a big fan. So I was curious to hear about if you had any sort of touchstones that related to this genre, or if you were coming to it from the angle of, oh, this reminds me of a great TV show that I would love, leading to that very moment where you said you you first picked up this book.
2: Well, I mean, I'm familiar, I was familiar with Marvel, of course, because as most kids of my generation that you will talk to will say, I watched the X-Men animated series. And so I was familiar with that world. And then I am a big film and television person, so... I was into all of the Marvel films that were out there even before the MCU launched. So I was familiar with the world of Marvel before I launched into this series. And what's interesting about this series, the Clint Barton in this book is far away from the Clint Barton that we meet in the MCU and gets even further as sort of the MCU goes on, but... It was interesting to me that reading the author letter in the back of the first issue, they reference the first Avengers film. And they're like, surely you've met Clint in the Avengers film by now. And if that's why you're here, we're so glad you're here. Or surely you've liked Clint in other stories. And if that's why you're here, we're so glad you're here. And surely if you've never read a comic book before in your life, we're going to try to – you know, it's like it knows what it's doing in terms of being an ambassador for comics, in terms of just opening the doors and welcoming anyone to meet the story where it is. But I think my interest in mythologies, the first like really complicated, interconnected universe I got into that I can remember off the top of my head are the Dragonlance books. I don't know if you guys read those, but I was I know really of them. Yeah, I was really into the Dragonlance books as a kid and Star Wars, Star Trek, Lord of the Rings, et cetera, et cetera, all the ticking all the boxes uh, leading up to this. It baffled all of my friends that I wasn't into <laughs> comics because they were and I wasn't. And I I was like, I don't know what to tell you. So, I think
0: that's kind of an interesting thing is like sometimes it just takes the right book, the right person, the right time in your life to make that connection. And I, I love that. I mean, if somebody wants to get into comics when they're 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, doesn't matter. Just enjoy all the right. comics. <laughs> I'm glad at this point particularly it's becoming much more welcoming as a fandom in some ways, but as a medium and and like there's more entry points, I think, mm-hmm. now. I want to get into an important point in our reading clubs. So we're reading the first five issues of Hawkeye. It's in the collected as Hawkeye, My Life is a Weapon from 2012 through 2015, written by Matt Fraction, art by David Aja and Javier Pulido, colors by Matt Hollingsworth, letters by Chris Eliopoulos, and edited by Stephen Wacker, which is included in there because we'll talk about <laughs> old Wacker in a bit. But Joanna, I have 30 seconds I will give you on the clock, I'll give you a countdown, and then summary as best you feel. <laughs> okay. You're going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. All right. Starting in three, two, one, go.
2: Clint Martin, uh, a.k.a. Hawkeye, who is an Avenger, is living in an apartment building in Bed-Stuy, New York, and uh, he adopts a dog. He hangs out with another Hawkeye known as Kate Bishop, uh, and they go on several heists and adventures. Um, There are arrows involved, of course, but uh, primarily uh, in this first section, there are uh, some villains known as, I think, the tracksuit vampires. Uh, You will just know them by their use of bro and the tracksuits that they wear.
0: Boom. There you go. We got tracksuit vampires in there, (laughs) uh, which is always a ding-dang delight. And one of the things I wanted to, to point on and sort of goes back to some of the other points, at the end of issue number five, Matt Fraction takes the letters page and he sort of really encapsulates what the story is to him and to editor Stephen Wacker, that this book is about what Clint does when he's not an Avenger and he can't stop himself from doing good. Otherwise, all the things he runs from will catch up with him. The guy with busted knuckles and a split lip that'll help you move your couch anyway. The kind of hero everybody needs in their lives. And I think that's such a a cool perspective that it goes back to exactly what you're saying. If you've seen the movies, it's not quite the same, but it kind of could be. And if you've been reading the comics, it's not always been this sort of Clint, but he could be. And I think that's such a, a fun aspect to what makes this book work so well.
1: Ryan, I think you made such a good point with that letters page and just the general stance that Matt Fraction is coming to this character from. Because one of my favorite things, you know, having read this book a few times over the years, I I just love opening that credits page of issue number one and like the concision with which they just tell you, Clint Barton, aka Hawkeye, became the greatest sharpshooter known to man. He then joined the Avengers This is what he does when he's not being Avenger. That's all you need to know. For credits pages that often can be two or three or four paragraphs long, it's not that they couldn't have done that with this. It's not that they couldn't have gone into the the lore and the backstory and even where Clint Barton is at this point in continuity. So I just think it does say a lot about what they were trying to do in that same way from issue number 1, you know, exactly like you 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 pointed out in that in that letter's page of saying it's that perfect kind of beautiful everywhere and nowhere comic book thing where like this will fit wherever you want it to fit in continuity and with whatever's going on in the comic book world at this time or it could just fit beautifully out of that out of space, out of time, just in its own little corner of the universe, which is something I love so much, Joanna. Your choice of this book is absolutely surprising that it hadn't been chosen before. I describe this as a modern classic. This is absolutely as respected and beloved by, you know, the most deep comic book prose as it is as like a casual reader, which was part of what makes it so great.
2: Yeah, no, and to your point about it existing wherever you want it to exist. I do love in a comic when you get an asterisk that tells you to, you know, remember this issue, et cetera. Like, that's fun. But what they accomplish in this book in the second issue of the chunk we're talking about here, there's just a simply a panel. I think it's just one panel where it's like, this is Kate Bishop. She took over Hawkeye when I was being like a ninja or something. And that's <laughs> all you need to know. Boom, one panel. Moving on, you can go find out if you want, but you don't need to know to be caught up here. And that's, that's the thing that like, it can be a tricky balance because it is all, of course, so rewarding for people who have been at this their entire life, or even for a couple of years or a decade or whatever it is to have references and connections and, and be feel rewarded for being along for the ride the whole time. But if you can have that and hold a handout to people who are just meeting this for the first time, that's genius. And that's what I think this book does. And it gives you a Hawkeye, like you immediately know who Clint is in that first issue because they use, and it should be Hokey, what they use here, which is a save the dog moment, like a save the cat <laughs> moment. They want you to like Clint because he saves his dog and saves all his like neighbors at the same time, but is also so gruff and all this other stuff and just gets pummeled, absolutely pummeled again and again and again. And you just love him. You love him so much. I, I just think it's brilliant.
0: But he's also a yeah. because he like gets out of the hospital and he's like, all right, I got to get out of here. I got to walk, whatever. And the guy's like, no, 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 no. And he's pushing him in the wheelchair. Click gets out of the wheelchair and he kicks it into traffic, which is such a jerk move. But <laughs> yeah. you can't help but be like, oh, that Clint.
2: I mean, it's because both <laughs> exist at the same time. And because that first issue hops back and forth in time. So you get the juxtaposition of his dickishness with his like – Saving this dog, my dog, you know, sort of stuff. So good. So smart.
1: Joanna, I'm curious for me and your writer. So I'm curious if this is the case for you. The first place my head went or goes when I'm reading a book, certainly in years past when I wasn't reading every single comic every week, was the writing. And I would think about, oh, what's I wonder what this script is like. I wonder what's his process for getting into these characters' heads. Yeah. All of those kind of things First, I would like to know about your thoughts on that. And then I was curious about your journey into the world of comic book art and how you might have read or appreciated David Aha's work in here versus how you see, you know, comic book art differently or if you appreciate it in another way, having, you know, been involved, you know, with comics for a longer period of time.
2: Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned the, the script thing because the first thing I did with my dumb, broken writer brain is like, try to write my own comic book script. I was like, how do you do this? You know, and not, not with any aspirations at all, just trying to like figure out the animal. Right. And so I I had a friend of mine who's a really good artist. And I was like, should we just try to like, let's try to figure out how this, how this happens? Like, how do you do this? Uh, And what I found out is, you know, you have to be so much more descriptive and precise than I uh, ever really understood. And I know that the relationships between writers and artists are very different um, story to story, and sometimes it's it's more collaborative and sometimes it's more prescriptive and stuff like that. But um that was really illuminating to me where I was like, oh, I don't just get to write the funny little <laughs> dialogue boxes. I gotta I gotta do more than that. so and and then I started seeking out scripts to sort of break it down and see how it works. And then for the art part, I think this five issue run, is a really good example of that because you've got three issues with David Aja, who is just the perfect partner for this story. And then you've got the two issues that Javier did, and there's nothing wrong with Javier's art. It's great art, but you miss David's art when you're reading those two issues. And in the letter, I think in issue four, um, it's something like, hey, you know, David and Javier are gonna be alternating so that we can churn this out to meet the demand for it. And that's not what wound up happening. And I don't know exactly what the reaction was or whatever, but I, David wound up doing most of the issues. Javier didn't wind up coming back. And, like, for the most part, it's David's art – with a few exceptions, one of them being my absolute favorite comic book artist of all time is Annie Wu. I am obsessed with her. I think she's incredible. She did this sort of like Kate Bishop side story later in the run. And I think that was a really good match for that. Like when Kate's going off sort of on her own, it's really good to have Annie's art in there for that. Um, but but I think that that's something that can be jarring for newcomers to the art of comics. You know, for people who are who are more familiar with stories where you just follow a character through a straight story, they might get stressed out by the way in which continuity is a little bit flexible sometimes in the comic world. And they might get stressed out when the artist changes, so the look of the character changes. And that can be sort of stressful, I think, sometimes. And there have been other runs where I'm not at all stressed by that uh, change. But I think in this one, the collaboration between David And Matt is so strong.
1: It's an interesting one art-wise, I think, because it is so, it really does feel so precise. There are so many pages with a huge panel layout, really, really particular angles, reactions, just like crucial moments that I feel like are so well done that... Maybe to the layman, you would read it and just be like, oh, it's like just come kind of some fun, like scratchy looking kind of comic book art. These big lines and, you know, it's just kind of fun. Does the job. But I really think there is such a level of precision and brilliance here. But what's interesting to think about, and, and it weaves perfectly into what you were saying, Joanna, between the the writer and the artist and the collaboration, is I, I am curious about who is really who was bringing that to the table? Because it was either Matt Fraction saying like, we have a cascading group of 12 mini panels with like faces that are reacting to this moment. And in this one, we see this person from this angle and this one, we see, you know, or it's David doing a little bit more Marvel style and just kind of building out the visual language of this book. But it, I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but someone is bringing that level of particularity and and just hard work to each and every one of these issues and it's it's it is just a, it's one of those things that I think becomes a more and more rewarding experience the more you dive into it the more you read it the more you look at what you're actually digesting instead of just being blown away by the story by for the first time which you know I definitely was
2: yeah and there are so many tiny visual gags like in the corner of panels you know what i mean like mm-hmm. um <laughs> One that I sent to a friend of mine this morning, I think it's issue two, where Clint's just trying to make coffee for himself and like he spills his coffee and he just goes, Oh, coffee. Oh, and you just see oh the coffee, coffee spilled. And it's not even, <laughs> that's not the main point of that panel. It's just like a background joke of that panel. It's so good. <laughs> or any of the stuff that Pizza Dog is doing, you know, in the corner of most panels is pretty great.
0: Or even the way Clint eats that slice of pizza when he first encounters. Lucky, it's yeah. You know, it just feels so New York and so natural. Like he's licking his fingers, he's holding the the slice. Yeah. I was like, you could do that panel in a hundred different ways, mm. but the way it's done there is so thoughtful and so smart. It's yeah. You know, I, I keep going back to thinking about Joe Casada, our former editor in chief and former you know ever. He's done so much, and he talked about how even when you have people just talking. Making sure that there's something, there's some movement, there's something there that draws you in, that gives you that sense of energy or mm-hmm. that sense of connection is so important. And it feels so seamless in the way they do it in this book.
2: Yeah. The other thing that I that I wanted to say that I thought was – I will go ahead and bring a female perspective to this and say that um, – I get my back up when I feel like I'm being pandered to in sort of a like, girl power, girls can do it sort of way. And the introduction of Kate Bishop here is so strong because she's just great. And, you know, there's no, because I'm a girl, you don't think I can do it. She's just really insanely competent. She's great. And he loves her, but like also makes it clear that it's not, you know, or at least whatever, it's complicated, but it's not like his one ambition is to sleep with her. He just admires her because she's great. And when he calls her, when he just calls her Hawkeye and she calls him Hawkeye, like there's just something so clean and pure and arms wide open about that, that I just really love.
1: I remember interviewing former Kate Bishop writer Kelly Thompson, current writer extraordinaire, about that exact thing. I think it was for West Coast Avengers where both of these characters appear. And Kelly just went off talking about the magic of these two characters together. For some reason, it's one of those things where uh, if you know these characters, if you you know can get inside their heads, there's just something that works so perfectly. The chemistry, it's kind of a weird thing to say for, for a fictional character, but like it's so there. I I love looking at it as well as like the kind of children, so to speak, creatively of this series, or at least that's how I kind of read it. Because I I certainly think of Kelly Thompson as perfectly in line with this series. I think of Matt Rosenberg, Matt Rosenberg writing Hawkeye in uh, Tales of Suspense as perfectly in line with this series. And, you know, I think one, it definitely speaks to the universality of this book, but I think it also does speak to how influential this series has been overall. Ryan, I was actually curious for some broader perspective, I see as the Fraction AHA book as the kind of grandfather of it in that way. Are there grandfathers to that grandfather that you can think of, like for Hawkeye, but, but, but maybe just for like the kind of space, the genre space that this book is occupying, you know, just like whatever you could think of as the hallmarks of this book? you know, it, if it had those forebears? I think
0: a, a lot of it is sort of the the pattern, mm, the mm-hmm. sort of dialogue and the, that thinking. And I think that came along in some of the Ultimates books and Brian Michael Bendis, um, Ed Brubaker, not necessarily with the sort of snappy dialogue here, but just that sort of, the groundedness that came along with what Ed was writing. And then you had artists like Steve Epting and some other folks who came in. And like the mid-2000s probably brought in a lot of the tonal shifting that some of what you were talking about, Joanna, and, and so how that was changing a little bit. But this one, it's quirky, and there's always a quirky book that you know we'll put out here and there. But it's it's just so damn good. And a part of it, I think goes to, you of course have these great writers and artists and stuff, but there's the people behind the scenes who you don't really, we don't talk about as much. And Tom Brevoort, who is, uh, you know, one of Marvel's greatest longtime editors said that, you know, editors, he says, should get none of the credit and take all the blame. But a good editor will put their stamp on a book and you know it's a good book when you see their, it's often going to be a good book when you see their name in there. There's some books, and I don't know if you've read Immortal Hulk, Joanna, but it's a humdinger of a book. And the editor on that is Will Moss, who's had edited Jason Aaron's Thor. You know, there's a a hallmark there. And for this book, it's um, Stephen Wacker and Sana Amanath, two people I'm very close with and great friends with, but their editorial choices are so strong. And you read Ms. Marvel. Son is a co-creator of Ms. Marvel. Steve Wacker was like longtime editor of Spider-Man books when, you know, some of my favorite Spider-Man stories of all time. And you feel their fingerprints in here in, and I think in ways that you would see like a great producer, not necessarily the director of something because, you know, the director role is a lot of like what Matt and David are doing on this book. But a great producer can help shape a story, shape a project in really cool ways, of course, like. Kevin Feige or, you know, other folks. Do you think about that at all when you when you look at a comic book or that sort of behind-the-scenes storytelling that goes on with these kind of projects?
2: For me, uh, as a longtime writer at Vanity Fair, like, I love my editors. I think editors are hugely important. So I do pay attention to that. And, I, and, and the same way you pay attention to... It doesn't necessarily have to have a defined title to it, but you know if Kevin Feige has his hand in a, something, you can trust that it's going to be good. That's how I felt I, – I brought up FX earlier. That's how I felt about that era of FX, like John Landgraf, who runs FX. I'm like, if John is pushing a show, I am probably going to be interested in it. Mm-hmm. He just has exquisite taste gives the best notes, supports the best creatives sort of thing. So, you know, there there are just these people, Richard Plepper's era at HBO, you know, there are just these people where you're just sort of like, I know that this is in safe hands and that's enormously valuable.
1: In in that similar vein, I don't know if there were other series that you were considering for coming on the show, but I'm curious just to hear what other books, what other series Whether it's from that era that you were speaking about, that kind of era of change, or more recently that you would put in a similar like, if I was now recommending this to someone to then recommend to their significant other, like this is a can't miss kind of thing, are there other books that come to mind when you when you think about it like that?
2: I think uh, Bendis's Alias is a huge, huge, huge book, and that's one that people tried to get me to read for years before I finally got, you know, and it was the right book to recommend to me. It was just the wrong time. But like, that was one that people were really going to be like, this is gonna be the one Joanna is gonna get you. <laughs> um, and then like I said, Squirrel Girl, which is a book that operates on so many levels, because it's really friendly for younger readers. But you know, Ryan North is so funny. And Erica's art is so good. And there's just like, there's enough in there to keep you interested, even if you're an older, like more jaded reader, whatever. I think they're if you, if you're open to it, the joy of Squirrel Girl, I think that's like a huge one. You were you were talking about like grandfathers of this series. And I was thinking about The Man Without Fear, the Daredevil comic. Like th- this idea of like a street level hero who is just going to get the stuffing beat out of him for the people in his community. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like Clint, it's interesting because there's the whole Ronin storyline that's referenced in issue number two, but... Clint is essentially in this book the gunslinger that comes to the town to like protect the townspeople, right, against the like evil crime lord. It's a classic gunslinger story, (laughs) a reluctant hero-ish sort of story, but not because he's gonna throw himself into the battle, but he's not but not like the way that Steve Rogers would, not like earnestly, you know what I mean? It's just (laughs) sort of like, oh, I guess I guess it's gotta be me, if it's gonna be someone. And so yeah, that that's the kind of story that I really latch on to.
0: Um, We've talked about art a bit. I want to make sure we give love to the covers. Particularly, I'm looking at them in Marvel Unlimited and seeing them sort of thumbnailed here, but just looking through them, most of them are by David Aha, but some are also by Francesco Francovia, who is wonderful. He has a couple issues in this run as well. Again, it's just so damn smart about how to package a book.
2: You can just like see it out of the corner of your eye and you know exactly what you're looking at. Nothing else looks like it. There's a lot of iconography involved. And then you just started seeing people like wearing their Hawkeye shirts around this time that, you know, had the purple target on it or the like, you know, and it was just in the same way that like Steve Shield or whatever became a thing. Like they they developed a lot of iconography around this series. The lettering on just on Hawkeye and the cover uh, is just incredible. And yeah, on Marvel Unlimited, it looks brilliant and beautiful.
0: Yeah. We don't get into it uh, specifically in this episode too much, but issue number 11, for anybody who hasn't read this run yet, please do. Read all 22 issues, but get ready for 11. 11 yeah. is is the issue that focuses on Lucky, aka Arrow, aka Pizza Dog, and it's just
1: beautiful. In your role as senior writer for Venue Fair, I'm, I'm curious, I, I guess I, I keep going back to this thing of like, your position as as an arbiter of, of these things, as someone who speaks to what makes something great, someone who speaks to what makes something, you know, maybe just miss. I'm curious in general, not just comics, but in whatever media you might be consuming, I just would like to hear your thoughts about if you ever get jaded with that, if it's ever tough to dive back into a new thing, if the special things are made more special by that or less special by that and relating that to this comic that we're reading, which, you know, as, you know, as it came out, it was just another comic, a great comic for sure. But for some reason it's lived on to be, you know, spoken about and thought of as this brilliant piece of work so many years later. And I think will continue to grow in stature. I was curious to hear your thoughts on all that.
2: Yeah. um, That's an interesting question this career of mine, this writing podcasting career that I have is very much a second career because my first career was as a bookseller. And so when I started in this world of writing about film and television full time was around that like 2011, 2010 sort of time. And it was a very different cultural landscape. And there was just way less we have way more TV wise, at least we have just way more and everyone is much more into the binge model. So we're not doing that sort of slow week to week chewing through something like that with the exception of, you know, Marvel television, etc., which I love. That's something that I absolutely, I'm so pleased with that choice.
1: It probably makes your job a little easier too, right? <laughs> I mean,
2: it sounds selfish when I talk about it, but <laughs> I try to separate that from the fact that like it disappoints me when something drops in a binge. And people are watching it at a different pace. So we can't all talk about it together. You know, I love, I do podcasts about TV all the time. And I love the weekly appointment viewing where we can just really dig into a series, especially if it's something, you know, like WandaVision where you get really like have a fun time with trying to figure out what's going on and the theories and stuff like that. It's just, I think, a deeper way to engage with a text, with a story. And you guys know this as comic readers. I mean, talk about a slow burn, like that's what comics are, right? There, It's a double-edged sword, you know, the, this idea of peak TV that we talk about a lot that John Landgraff of FX coined, but um, there's a benefits to it, which means a lot more people are getting to create stories, which means we're getting a lot more diverse voices. And that is hugely important to me. There's a part of me that doesn't want to say like, Make TV 2011 again, because that was just stories (laughs) about, like, white male antiheroes, which are great, and I love them, but I want more than that, right? (laughs) So I don't want to say that, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, can we keep the diverse perspectives, but just slow down and all agree to watch something together? You know, we talk about the monoculture and the end, like, Thrones being the last potentially last big TV. But then like, you know, Disney Plus and Marvel and and Lucasfilm are coming through with some stuff that are really capturing people's imagination. So I'm hopeful for that. So yeah, I wouldn't say jaded, just, I don't know, fractured, Matt, Matt mm. fractured.
1: <laughs> <laughs> are you someone who in that same vein, are you someone that will dive into a story beat or even in your own head, I'm not even talking professionally now, just go like, oh, if only they made this choice instead of that choice. Is that an instinct that comes to mind for you?
2: A thousand percent, and here's here's what I'll say about that. I will say that my absolute favorite thing is to compare the written source material to the final filmed product, because then you can see active choices being made, Mm -hmm. right? In the cuts or additions. I don't do it to say, oh, the book was better. Oftentimes the book was better, but like, you know, I don't do it to say that. I do it to say this additive thing is a really smart, great move. I love that they added this. That's great. Or it's really a shame that they lost this because I think this was a really valuable thing. Or this thing that works so well on the page, this voiceover, this whatever it is, this internal monologue, they didn't figure out a way to make that translate to the screen. And so I find that a really valuable compare contrast Tool to try to drill down on what exactly it is that slightly missed the mark when something missed the mark. because usually if they're adapting something, a book or a comic book or whatever the case may be, if, if they're adapting something, that's usually something that's been enormously successful, that has a built-in audience that that is a story that has landed with people. And if it doesn't land on the screen, that means there was an adaptive choice made that didn't work. And that, to me, is always fascinating.
0: Um, last thing I wanted to talk about—we've we've hit on it a little bit—is the timelessness of this book. It can exist whenever, except there. there issues four and five—you know—we bring in Shield, and there's you know a very specific time frame that they work in. Uh, but the the other thing that sort of like sparked it as a very specific time was in the letter in issue number five, the letters pages, in which. Matt Fraction writes the you know covers it because Steve and Sana were here in New York and we th- it was going to press days after superstorm Sandy hit and I was just thinking like man comics never stop I was coming back from Australia from the set of the Wolverine and got stuck in California because I couldn't get home because of the storm but I remember like my former co-host on this show recorded the episode in his car because he couldn't get to the office the Volks in publishing were still putting out comics it's just fascinating to me thinking about the ways in which art is made and how it's seen and you don't even think about it you know I didn't even realize nine years later that that's the <laughs> that was sort of the setting of the the final ways that this went it made its way into people's hands which is it's real neat
2: it is real neat. And it's really neat also when you can think about the ways in which those things seep into a story. It's interesting to look at, you know, the the books and the movies and you're like, Bush era, Obama era, Trump era, what is, what is happening with the stories there? And that's a very American-centric point of view. But like, you know, what is happening with our culture and what is happening with the stories? You know, not to say anything is making a direct reference to anything, but – it just is in the groundwater of these creatives is what they're consuming. I was just thinking the other day about um, I live in the, in the Bay area of, of California, Northern California. And uh, you know, we had a day last year when the sky turned orange and it was really weird. It was so, so <laughs> weird, but I went to work anyway. I wrote things on that day, you know what I mean? And, and they will forever be the things that I wrote the day the sky turned orange.
1: That's such a good point. Also good. Um, Maybe good book title.
2: The Day the Sky Turned Orange. <laughs> for
1: the future, just follow that one. Away. <laughs> Joanna, thank you again so much for talking to us about all of these things. I am so deeply delighted to have you on the show and to hear your perspectives on this book and the broader media cultural world.
0: Thanks, Joanna. Thank you.
1: Thank you again to Joanna Robinson for an excellent chat, digging into what is a legendary book from, you know- not even 10 years ago is so much fun. So thanks again to Joanna for joining us. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was
0: produced by Ryan Pinago's Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff
1: is our director of audio.
0: And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. He's also known as MoDad, a mental oh. organism designed only for oh. developing, but also he's a dad yeah. to the max.
1: He is the best.
0: I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker And
1: this is Marvel Your Universe